0: Did yes. you know off topic that I just picked up my phone while I was waiting for you? And there, there's a convention
1: today I at mean, Wayne Police Athletically? Because we, look, like, hmm? we went to one up there in the past. I forget whether it was a, not a comic show, really. I know they did have them there. But it was like an oldies type thing. Like you would go there and they would have stuff from the 40s, like buttons or old games or old uh, That's books what it or looks whatever. Like.
0: That's what it looks like. I'm
1: looking at, there's only two
0: or three photos, but there looks to be like um, a lot of comics, uh, Mm -hmm. baseball cards. or baseball cards, right. Trading cards. And, uh, you know, I I guess if you're, if you hold up for a con, (laughs) (laughs) I I just, you know, everybody seems to be, here's the reason why I brought up. Everybody seems to be wearing masks, not too packed, but
1: uh, how are you going to do this when you have these big shows? You know, That's the problem. Because, you know, I could use a couple of... Especially having gone through so much and reorganized all my comics and sold a couple off basically for peanuts just to get them the fuck out of the house. Mm. You know, it was all the newer stuff that I didn't want. I just kept collecting dust here. So basically now I'm down to all 70s and very early 80s stuff and what little of the 60s I have. That's it. Which is good. That's where I wanted to be anyway. That's where all the good stuff is. And... <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> the later stuff's like, oh, God, it sucks. I got a couple of things, but very little. But while I was doing all that, I was like, oh, okay, I got this hole in my collection still, or, hey, I thought I had this one and I don't, and whatever. So, uh, look, I could definitely use another show or two to try to find, you know, here's this gap, here's this one issue, this whatever. Mm, and, I, can you know, I can't yeah. even picture when the hell it's going to happen, because these things are always crowded, like, elbow to elbow. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but fat guys that don't bathe, So that you walk in and it stinks like crazy, right? And you know they're not going to have great hygiene, so I was like, I'm not going to mess with that when fucking COVID's going around. So I don't even know. It might be like a year before I see another comic show. I have no idea. It's been since, I guess, February already. uh, Yeah, all right, all right. (laughs) But, yeah. All right, so uh, anything else you want to say before we finally start rolling? (laughs) Yeah, let's go. Let's go for it and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) It's always like that. That's where I run my life. Well, let's try it and see what happens. Run up the flagpole and see who salutes. You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. You're such a guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Donald Pleasance on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on podcast. Welcome to uh, let's call this the first. Welcome to the first episode of the tenth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Tonight, a former railway clerk and wireless operator for the RAF, this man came out of World War II to build a career as a manically nervous, occasionally imperious, and often downright perverse character actor in a stunning range of film and television appearances across any number of genres. In fact, he's done so much work, he can almost be compared to Jess Franco with nearly 250 credits to his name. So join us as we pick out a number of favorites and a few odd surprises along the way, as we touch on everything from art house to war and comedy to horror, only here on Weird Scenes. Donald Pleasence, the hardest working oddball in cinema. Like I said, I am Doc Savage with Mr. Louis Paul, the maven of sleaze and virago of vituperativeness. Hello, Louis.
0: Hello, everyone. Um, actually, just to touch upon something very briefly that yeah, you mentioned, yes, he was a wireless operator for the uh, RAF, but as well... He was initially a conscientious objector. Yes, I hate that word because that's like a tongue teaser. Conscientious, <laughs> not objector. Um, <laughs> but he decided, from uh, you know if what I'm looking at is true, and it probably is, to actually join the Royal Air Force. He flew over 60 missions over Europe during World War II, and this might explain a bit of his persona. He was captured. His plane got shot down, he was captured, and he was in the uh, Prisoner of War. I, I'm unsure of how long it's possible it could have been, like at least two years. And while a Prisoner of War, it's alleged, you know, I haven't read any bios of Donald Pleasance uh, where maybe they found people who uh, knew him at the time to ascertain whether this, this is actually true, but it's quite possible. You know, they put on shows for their fellow captives. And I just mention this because he has... A very quirky presence and persona. I mean, not everybody that came out of the war had a quirky presence and persona, <laughs> but you know it affects people in different ways. And it's, it's quite possible that there you could trace back to you know God knows what.
1: So. Pardon the interruption. No, it's fine because it's actually uh you covered some of the material I'm just gonna cover here. So well, it if this sounds repetitive, you know why. Uh <laughs> from the same sources. So he was actually born in nineteen nineteen, believe it or not. We listened until nineteen ninety five, so he was here for about seventy five years. He was born in Nottinghamshire, England after following his station master father so his father kind of ran the rails there into a job as a clerk at that same railway station he decided he had enough and it was time to give acting a try he was drafted in 1939 but he was a conscious objector and did get out like you mentioned but then he changed his mind after the blitz hit you know that's another thing this guy says okay i don't believe in war i'm not doing this whatever you know even like muhammad ali is against my religion The deal. okay fine but then when something hits home and you're like you know what? It's it's kind of like we we're talking with this election. This isn't a normal election. It's it's the same thing with you know. Okay, I don't believe in war. I don't want to get involved. Whatever. Oops, here comes the blitz. How just bomb my fucking city and kill a whole bunch of people and my area is all in ruins? Am I still going to sit back and say, ah, eh, well, let's let's just see what happens or let him run roughshod over? So you say, okay, you know what? Maybe it's time to put my big boy boots on and pull up my pants yeah. and get the fuck out there and do something about this bastard. This is it. You got to do something about Donald Trump. We got to stop this. So, uh, good for him. And you know, not that it was bad. There's a conscious objector. I understand that. I'm good with that. But it's also better to me that he realizes sometimes you just can't be. You got to decide where you who you are and where you stand, and you got to act. And this is definitely one of those times. So, get out there and vote. So. He actually got uh, volunteered into the RAF, and he flew nearly 60 raids against the Axis as a radio wireless operator. Wow. At the end of the war, close to it, his plane was shot down, and he was imprisoned in in uh, the Stalag Luft. Uh, but back then, just so you know, it's not quite like nowadays, uh by the way it's becoming, because these were the days when even Nazi Germany obeyed international law and the Geneva Convention. huh which says something about where Bush took us. Uh, so he was actually well-treated as a POW, which was kind of the accepted order. You know, If you got somebody that was a prisoner of war, you didn't waterboard them. You didn't do all this weird shit to them. You didn't abuse them and strip them naked and take photos of them doing the pyramid and all this crap. This is really bad, where we've gone. So remember that. Even Nazi Germany obeyed the Geneva Convention back then. Somewhat,
0: <laughs> somewhat. So well, it did happen. It did happen. Yeah. And it was documented. But that's the dark... This is a dark... Sorry
1: to everything. No, of course. So when I say they're good people, I'm just saying how extreme this, yeah. um, how far we've gone. It actually may have been like Escape to Athena, if you believe the story here, because uh, we had talked that one in our Elliot Gould because like you said, he actually wound up putting on plays and shows for everybody at the camp. We get, get him through. Some more interesting tidbits about him. He was actually the host on that, was I don't know if it is anymore, but it was banned for many years. The Saturday Night Live episode uh, where John Belushi wanted to bring punk bands on because he was into those. So they got mm-hmm. those amusing provocateurs, Fear, uh, which was a great choice because they brought their fans and they shocked not only America at large, but Lauren Michaels, who banned them and pulled it from reruns and releases. Again, I'm not sure if they finally reinstated it. It's been a lot of years, but you can see it. It's on, it's on YouTube. Yes. It's on YouTube. As I was say, you can yes. see it online pretty easily. And it is hilarious, uh, especially if you're into fear. Uh, supposedly, the reason that he's got such an enormous filmography was that he never turned down any role offered to him. That sounds like hyperbole to me, but who knows? <laughs> the man was nothing if not ubiquitous. That's all I can say. However brief his roles tend to be. Uh, of course, he also had a rather creepy-looking daughter who managed to look just like him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God you said it, because I did not want to say that. Yes. Because I... I'm sorry. Angela Pleasance yes. is a creepy-looking woman. No, and he he looks she looks just like him somehow though and she's also like eerily serpentine so because she was so um, creepy looking she got cast in a few horror films from Beyond the Grave which we talked on in amicus show and which her father also mm-hmm. appears in the moody Jose hilaraz film Symptoms which is probably the best of them mm-hmm. And the ridiculous American 80s horror, The Godsend, where she's an evil I-don't-know-what, playing off the behavior of the cuckoo bird The Myth of the Doppelganger. She comes in, leaves these folks with this baby, and the kid winds up killing off the other ones to become the only child. They are really grass-masters at that point. But nonetheless, that's how she got cast in those films. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I guess we can go back to more or less the beginning here. Yeah. I picked out stuff that I found interesting. So, some of it's TV, some of it's movies. and
0: I, I, I agree. I agree. Because, you know, when a man, when a man has... As many acting credits, which I, I Christopher Lee fans hold on to your armchair legs. I think Donald Pleasance did more than Christopher Lee may have done. I believe that. Just in pure appearances, if we're going to include live television from England, which mm-hmm. majority of which is lost to time, as well as filmed television from
1: England and film. It's just phenomenal Like I said, he's close to Jess Franco Because I would have said close to uh, Roddy McDowell, who we did a show on But Roddy was only like in the 170s So Donald Pleasant beats him out easily (laughs) Which says something Uh, That's the most ubiquitous guy I knew of before this So, you know, not the beginning of his career But kind of early on 1959, he's in a film called Look Back in Anger It's an early example of those awful Kitchen sink dramas the Brits were so fond of Through the 70s, which still lives on And popular direct like EastEnders Same idea Richard Burton graduated from university and knows his way around a jazz trumpet, but his lower-class background leaves him working at a fruit stand and living with his wife and business partner pal in the same dingy flat. Naturally, he's pissed off at a rigged society that discourages social and financial betterment, but instead of lashing out at, at a more deserving target and trying to change things in any meaningful way, he just gets drunk and beats his wife. <laughs> After being browbeaten for suggesting an abortion to the family doctor, she invites her pal Claire Bloom to live with him as well. One beating in front of her, she convinces Wifey to get the hell out of there, and then promptly starts fucking the guy herself. Woohoo! Eventually, Wifey miscarries and comes back to Burton, and the bestie bows out. in the film. Whoa! What the fuck did I just watch there, and why? Thank God for high-speed scanning. I have never understood the love for this stuff. I mean, even watching those little bits with the bloated Diana Doors and Craze, or what have you, always left a churning feeling in my stomach, and having to sit through Georgie Girl for the Charlotte Rampling Show was, I considered, a true <laughs> cinematic nadir. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one's perhaps not as painful as that low light of modern cinema it's pretty damn bad i wonder if liz got off on dick smacking her around like he does the ladies in this one they were married and separated i don't know how many times and oasis wrote a song about this fucking movie pleasance is barely in the damn thing a few cameo bits as nasty food inspector where they sell their shit that's basically it what's your take <laughs> well uh, uh can we do
0: a richard burton shark here no Remember we didn't but we ship. can i would like to um i always been in Richard Burton. Really? Uh, he had high points, low points. He, he's, he's, you he, know he's fucking drunk. <laughs> he's a magnificent <laughs> actor. Yes, folks. If this is new to you, it's that kind of show, because we're going to heavily promote this show when it's ready to mm-hmm. go, because it's been a while. People may not remember. People may be new. I did see looking to post links to our old shows mm-hmm. that were, were in the top. 20 of most listened to podcasts. Oh, thank you,
1: people. I didn't even
0: know this. Yes, thank Yeah, thank you, people. Where did uh, you see that? I, saw that? I was looking to post a link to our old shows, or a majority of them, like, you can go here for a list, and it said, you know, in the top 20. I'm like, who's, wow, who composed this? Who, yeah. You know, and then I lost it. I got busy. I'm quite wow, well impressed. Thank you. Thank you, people, from the heart. Yes. Our very black <laughs> the, heart. My black yes, heart, I was going to say sweet. that.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: uh, thank you very much. Uh, I don't know who put this together, but obviously somebody did maybe a uh, algorithm thing or something. So people
1: are listening. So thank you. Send us shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh anyway I'm anybody going, who's out there releasing going. blu-rays dvds whatever we're available give us a call and we can do a commentary for you or something
0: <laughs> yes that, that too. uh that's true anyway back to richard burton you seemed a little shocked surprised maybe or thought i was joking <laughs> no I, I like richard burton i saw this and actually there's a tv version of this they 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 did it for a telefilm i forgot who the director was it might have been tony richardson nigel Neal wrote the script yes. for this mm-hmm. So you know, mess. <laughs> uh, oh Mess, yeah. So you you know, you're thinking, holy shit, I gotta watch this. It's hard. It's hard it to is. watch. It. You know, it's 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 you know tough. You just described it pretty well. Donald Pleasance is is hardly in it, barely in it. But um, you know, British Youth Anger movie, uh, based on John Osborne play. John Osborne was, you know, interesting play, right? And he this stuff was popular for long long time but this is hardcore burton when he was young hungry and he still had that deep welsh welsh accent so uh you know some of his scenes with claire bloom and mary you're raw, and it's like it's hard to watch because it's like almost in one aspect it's cheesy Mm -hmm. but then because we're in we're in the 2000s we're in a totally different millennium but in another aspect, at that time period, British working class people, before the dawn of British rock, mm-hmm. right, which changed everything. Yeah. And if anybody says no, it did. Oh,
1: yes, it fuck did. You. It did it globally. Oh, yes,
0: it <laughs> did. But right, But about three years before that happened, things were hard everywhere. This is a hard working class guy, mm-hmm. you know, he, trying to make ends meet, falls in love and, you know. Was Burton a little too old, for this? hard to tell. He always had that kind of chiseled, hardworking feature. The guy was a miner, for Christ's sake, in real life before he became an actor. Or while he was an actor, he was still mining.
1: So, <clears throat>
0: don't age anybody.
1: Well, Tom Jones got out of okay? <laughs> and Sean Connery. Yeah,
0: Tom, yeah, well, you know, yeah, a lot of bro, well, we should. We've done a Sean show. We didn't do a Tom Jones show. We do Tom Does he Jones do many movies show? though? I
1: don't think he did much. He's more known for his singing and his TV show. But there you go. <laughs> That's a show right there. The best of Tom Jones. I love Tom Jones It's great. Uh, we can do that. Why, why, anyway. why, <laughs> Hey,
0: hey, I saw Tom live, so I can say. So anyway, I I like Richard Burton. This is a tough movie to watch. Don Pleasance is barely in it. But, historically, it's, it's an interesting film. Believe Can you it. picture if they put Oliver Reed in his role? <laughs> well, you know, they probably, probably screen tested for that, the way things are going. Um, because you said he was barely in it, another downbeat, bleak movie was 1984. Mm-hmm. And the uh, 1956 version starred uh, American, Ed, Edmund O'Brien, mm-hmm. Yes, based on the Orwell, and Pleasance had a, a smaller role in this as well, but this oddly enough, this version was not as striking as the British television version, which starred Peter Cushing, by the way. So I just wanted to mention that out. So so Pleasance also had probably a much smaller role than the one he had in Look Back in Anger in this 1984, but it's it's almost like forgotten
1: about. Yeah, and I think most in, people think of the John one
0: from 82 uh, or where it was. Which which had who? As the villain. As Richard right. Burton. <laughs> <laughs> right. we we'll talk about things going yep. around. All right.
1: So next, uh, next up, uh, well, I'm going to skip a couple of films, to nineteen sixty Circus of Horrors. This is another one of those nasty circus-slash-zoo-slash-crime museum things that were really big around the turn of the 50s into the 60s, where regular for such fair, Anton Differing, is a back-alley plastic surgeon on the run from the pigs who stumbles into an unusual front to continue his escapades almost unrecognizable with a full head of hair and a thick five o'clock shadow, Pleasance gets a memorable if brief bit part as the impoverished circus owner who different gets to hand the circus over in exchange for fixing his daughter's scarred face. She obnoxiously runs around for ten minutes yelling, I'm beautiful! I'm beautiful! To every rock, tree, or animal in range. Then he gets the poor schmuck drunk which leaves him pulling a Siegfried and Roy with his underfed bear and stands back when some guy in a terrible animal costume supposedly bear hugs him to death. You gotta see this costume and believe it. It's all of 10 minutes in total, but as we'll see, that's sort of par for the course. Pleasance makes his jitters and quirks count in what amounts to precious little screen time throughout his career. The film is acceptable if mean-spirited British fare of its day, but Pleasance acquits himself well enough and in a rare sympathetic role to boot.
0: I, I really can't add much to this, except for it was a mainstay on television, late-night TV, folks, uh, for years. And then when it finally surfaced on uh, probably VHS, a lot of us... Rented it, I don't even bought it. Uh, DVD, it's uh, circumspect. It, was it? You probably. was it a right?
1: double feature from um, Anchor Bay. I forget what was on the other one.
0: Oh, Anchor Bay or Retro Media, maybe. Maybe it's Retro Media. Uh, uh, pretty it, sure it's Anchor Bay. Oh, uh, you could be right. It's a fun movie, you know. But oddly enough, uh, Anton Differing, everyone knows. Um, we all remember Yvonne Manoir. Yes. Yes, <laughs> for specific reasons (laughs) Uh, yeah Donald's barely in this but he actually makes the most of his screen time uh, to to try not to sound cliched he does well
1: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to jump up a little bit to uh, 1960 and 61, the Danger Man TV series, which is over on the stateside as Secret Agent. Uh, it was the Patrick McGowan series that he was famed for before doing The Prisoner. Okay, he's in two episodes. One is Position of Trust, and the other one, Find and Return. So Position of Trust... Just before coming up with The Prisoner, Patrick Magoon's main clan, fame was secret agent, or as it's known outside the U.S., Danger Man. It's far less sci-fi and doesn't bear any larger theme about the boundaries of and struggle between society and the individual, but in some ways, at least the first series is more conventionally entertaining, somewhat akin to The Saint without the awful ethnic impersonations and weird comedy that that brought with it. In this one, McGoon is sent off to the Middle East, a favorite destination it seems, to bust up a drug smuggling ring with the help of fellow agent Miss Moneypenny, Lois Maxwell, <laughs> and nervous little Donald Pleasance. As ever, the episode is too short for the scenario they want to cram in there. So by the time we meet Pleasance, pennies out. They get drunk. He gambles too much. A strong arm pays him a visit, followed by the local gendarme, both of whom they trick, and the episode just ends. What the hell did all that have to do with drugs? Did they even accomplish their mission here? That's a big problem with this series. Uh, it's too short for all the stuff to try to write into it. So the other episode, Final Return, Magoon is South to the Middle East to bring back a female spy. This time around, Pleasance is an unkempt little typewriter repairman come local agent who's been keeping tabs on her and who the home office is a bit lax in paying for his services. Frank Thornton, the stuffy Captain Peacock from Are You Being Served, gets a blink and you missed a cameo. The problem with this show, beyond its overly short half-hour time slot in the earliest and best season, there was a break where Magoon walked the way to do other films and shows, only to return for two more seasons in the mid-60s, is Patrick McGowan himself. While he works well enough in the role and is a somewhat George Sanders with testosterone of a lead character, the man was overly conservative and devoutly Catholic, which meant that he had major issues with any hint of sex, cheesecake, or even a whiff of romantic interest. His John Drake comes off as best asexual, if not closet queer, so little interest is he displays towards his feminine mystique, and it drags the show down, noticeably so. The fact that even my wife noticed this was an issue when we sat through these a few years back should say it all, so... Yeah, it's. Uh, I do like the show, but it's, that's a major problem for it. And the fact that you really don't feel like the stories wrap up is also an issue.
0: Right, that's an interesting <laughs> –
1: here we go again,
0: digressing. <laughs> that's an interesting take on the Patrick McGowan uh, Danger Man secret agent because um, one cannot really ex- – at... <laughs> one, one cannot really look at that. Thing unless they watch all those half-hour episodes. by God, there's a lot of them. There is, and the two years of hour-longs plus the uh, the few color episodes, which oddly enough they edited together to make a feature and brought more interest back into the show <laughs> after it was done. Go figure. He's a strange sort of yeah. fellow.
1: He directed Catch uh, My Soul. Come on, where'd I that mean, come from?
0: <laughs> well, and then we have the prison, which we're not yeah. even addressing right now, because that'd be a whole other thing. So, yeah, despite what you said, I I, I understand that's what <laughs> you're saying, and that you're, that's you and your Mrs. <sighs> outlook on what you're trying to bring from what you're viewing, what he's, he's doing, right. and you could be right. I just don't know what's going on with the guy, because post-69, anything he did was even mm-hmm. weird And Catch My Soul definitely is definitely out there. <laughs> i don't know um i did see these uh yeah they're they're, they're short you know tight tightly wound but yeah you know, here's the thing with the, a lot of these danger Band things is you wish they were longer exactly and and how the hell could you shoot line up you know just do just put together these 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 many things and and Hope they work. And, you know, for the majority, it did. But a lot of times we're like, is that it? It's over? You know, even the <laughs> hour-long ones. How many episodes of The Saint, which were, you know, a little under an hour, more or yes. less, did you like, well, something's wrong. We kind of slammed into that ending too quickly. Oh, you know, it's just very uh, uh, strange. Were, were you going to mention Flesh and the Fiends? It's, it's 1960, around this time period. John Gilling... To work with Hammer the Reptile, a couple other things. Plague of the Zombies. Yep, the Cornish duo. The Cornish duo, yes. He directed this film for kind of Hammer upstarts. Uh, I forgot the name of the was company. Tiger? No, he Was it was there were in these. Anglo Amalgamated? <laughs> something, like, you know, something like that. No, something like that. It it's pretty much started Peter Cushing, there's that name again, as Robert Knox and... Donald Pleasant's played here. George Rose, who had a huge career on Broadway, as Burke, Burke mm-hmm. and Here, the Grave Robbers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so Dr. Knox was essentially a uh, person who was a free-thinking, forward-thinking physician at one of Britain's major hospitals, who, what's, a, what's a, the cheat version of this is he wanted bodies to continue his experiments to look good, and to forward his ideas, medical ideas. So he hired these two bozos who were both crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they stole bo- – he didn't uh, – apparently unbeknownst to him, they robbed
1: graveyards. So, <laughs> And he wanted them fresher for his experiments, so then they started actually killing people.
0: They started actually killing people. So Pleasance was here. George Rose was Burke. There has been many versions of this uh idea story over the years god i think it's even done on stage this is one of the earliest ones uh this this whole thing of baker and berman robert baker monty berman the producers they actually did much better with something about a year or two earlier called jack the ripper black also black and white this is the black and white film i'm talking about and um it's, it's very interesting to see. I think I think Donald still has hair in this. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to, wanted to mention that because around this time period, he also did this film. There's, there's a favorite of mine that I, I, I think you may not have seen or just forgot about. We, we've done a show, sort of, or we did a show on Carry On, the Carry On films. And so from the same producers that I just spoke of, Robert Baker, Monty Berman, they tried to do a carry-on knockoff. Really? Called What a up. Oh,
1: yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> so it's a British comedy horror film. So you know, everyone knows, if you're familiar with British comedy, British horror, what a crazy bunch of movies the carry-on films are. And carry-on screaming is probably my very favorite because it works for some reason. So some of the people from Carry On Films, Sid James, Kenneth Connor, are in this movie. Probably because the producers paid them money to be in the, what would you say? What did the they movie?
1: get? Kenneth Williams.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? He was my favorite. <laughs> so Shirley Eaton's in this. Dennis Price. Michael Goff. I mean, Michael Gwynn. We're really talking crossover in here. Dennis Price, favorite. Jess uh, Franco. Jess Franco. So Donald Pleasant shows up as a solicitor. It's a fun film. It's very much in the vein of carry-on screaming, but more so in the vein of the terrible Hammer film, The Old Dark House with Tom Poston. Oh, yes.
1: Now, you're talking about uh, this. Wasn't it a Norman Wisdom film? This one? No. Yeah, okay.
0: No, this is not a Norman Wisdom film, but... But this, this is kind of like a knockoff. And I did not know this was this even existed until Sinister Cinema, if, uh, all those old VHS collectors out there, Sinister Cinema was a, a decent company. You know, it, it, they yeah, were great. They would get 35, 16-millimeter films, transfer them. They put them out on VHS. Uh, quality for the time was we were happy. Mm-hmm. Um, they put this out. And I was like, what is this? It's a carry-on film I don't know? No, it wasn't a carry-on film. So anyway, Donald Pleasance appears in this carry-on type film, um, which which was a lot of fun. It's like an old Dark House film again. Uh, I just wanted to put it out there. Uh, sorry to take you off track.
1: Cause no, not at all. And I should actually- I should actually correct myself, too, because, you know, I kind of yesterday when you said that, because I was like, oh, did we do a carry-on show? We did a British slap-and-tickle show where we covered a lot of that stuff that kind of circled around them. But even though I've seen all the carry-on films, I have that set, we did not do a show on them, so.
0: But yeah, uh, we mentioned we, yeah, mentioned, we mentioned it, we mentioned it, we mentioned
1: it. So, The Great Escape. Great Escape, we talked about it on our Steve McQueen show and uh, mm. pretty well, and earlier in our Charlie Bronson show as well, so there's no need to get too deep into it, but Pleasance is the gentle bird-watching forager of the would-be escapees from this German POW camp, whose progressive loss of vision causes some difficulties for the group, and who winds up getting shot down during their final escape attempt, but grateful to die a free man at least. You notice he's there, but he's not one of the most important roles in the film, which is more notable for people like McQueen, Bronson. So uh, you do notice him. He's definitely got a sympathetic part, but it's not major, once again.
0: We we spoke about this a number of times. A couple of times, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, John Sturge's film, it's fucking great. I mean, nineteen sixty three film. This movie still rocks. Steve McQueen are you like, Oh, Steve McQueen? No, Steve McQueen. Once you watch this film, you will probably this is this is me talking. I mean, this is I, I can't speak for you, but I say, once you watch this film, you will understand the the beginning of what the Steve McQueen thing
1: was about. That's true. That's very true. When okay. I finally yeah. watched it and got it, and I was like, okay, and then I started checking out more Steve McQueen films seriously, as opposed to yeah. just like, well, I like Bullet, you know, whatever. So yeah, that's yeah. why we decided to do the show actually, because I just watched it recently for, I don't know, maybe for the Bronson show. So
0: <laughs> yeah, once you once you see this film, you get Steve McQueen, and then you know, hopefully you will watch more Steve McQueen. James Garner. Well, you know what? He's actually decent in this. Yeah, I was going to say, he was not bad in this at all. Yeah. He wasn't bad in this. Um, what was the big surprise in this room? I think for me, there were two people. One was Bronson, mm-hmm. um, who, who had a, a pivotal role, not a major role, but a pivotal role as, as a, a digger of tunnels who was claustrophobic. claustrophobic yeah. And the guy was just crazy good. I mean, whether they wrote it this way or they decided to, like, embellish it as it went along, he was just so good. Bronson, really good. Another guy in this movie I always thought was really good in a role that, as, as the film progresses, <laughs> it's our running time, like three hours, like one, like one of our shows. Uh, <laughs> James Coburn, who a lot of people don't give a lot of – say a lot of good things about. Don't even stick figure nice looking guy you know who had martial arts skills for real mm-hmm. but James Coburn's really interesting in this film as as not he, he sort of works with the forger in a way because he's the guy who gets shit from the Germans like I'll give you a pack of cigarettes for that for that shovel you know that kind of thing and you know he starts get, getting stuff so they can dig the tunnel and it's toward the end of the film when he's actually trying to get out and and like him and Coburn uh, him and – sorry him him and Brunson are just become like you start focusing on them because Steve McQueen is stuck in this. Uh, what, what do you call it when, you, when you're in a continual loop? What is that called? It's a continual
1: loop of time. Oh, uh, uh, I know what you're talking about, the movie strip.
0: Yeah, it's like a thing. You know, poor, poor McQueen's character, who's apparently based on a real-life person, he gets out, he gets caught, he gets out, he gets caught, and then finally he figures out, the only way to really save these people is to make sure I get caught again. So they, they can, they actually the ones who escaped, can escape. Great film. Now, Pleasance, as you mentioned, is the forger. Not a major part, but one that actually left a bit of an impression.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, uh, he does, of all things, the greatest story ever told, where he's the dark hermit who's also Satan. And I said, the most boring story ever filmed. It's one of those shitty Bible movies that's to shove down your throat at Easter, often getting all sorts of industry accolades as these were actual cinematic achievements instead of the big-budget dumpster fires they nearly all turned out to be. I'd say the best of them was John Huston's The Bible, just because there was a seedy undercurrent to a lot of it, like the Sodom and Gomorrah bit. But lavish visuals aside, they're all fairly unwatchable drac. Pleasance is a particularly laid-back Satan, appearing as a grubby hermit in a cave when Jesus is going through his 40-day fast in the desert. He pops up a few more times, like when Judas offers to betray Jesus to the Pharisees, or to get Peter to deny he knew Jesus, but mostly he just stands around and smiles for some total about a minute and a half of extra screen time. Damn, the man really phones in his career, huh?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, one thing I want to say about this movie is, um, this is like, George Stevens directed this. This is the guy that goes way back to old school Hollywood, you know, Dive of Frank, uh, working with uh, James Dean, you know, Old school Hollywood. So he must have put Max von Sydow as Jesus because he saw our Ingmar Bergman movie. I'm figuring it this time. 65, right? So Shelton Heston is John the Baptist in The Darkest Hero Manageable. Tully Savalas is Pontius pilot. Martin Landau is KFIs. So, yes, Donald Pleasence is Satan. Roddy McDowell is – this is like they weren't even doing coke at this time well maybe they were i don't know what was <laughs> what were they thinking of uh, it's just like it, this movie actually tanked uh, <laughs> uh did, did i need to say that <laughs> Y'all Deservedly so well, go ahead <laughs> i i guess they tried to market this to to kids too as matinees and it's just i'm sure they spent a ton of money it was just poorly planned out poor idea but Donald Plessis will start doing even stranger things Besides playing sick Oh yeah
1: So uh, jump up a couple of years And we get to one of those That you're all talking about Pretty strange film 1966 he does a film for Roman Polanski Called cul mm-hmm. I told you Albert and me are having a little trouble Get it? Little fairy only the second English-language film by Polanski, and boy, does he come out of the gate wearing his obsessions on his sleeve. So, after exploring the insanity of icy Captain Deneuve in Repulsion, Polanski now goes after her more lively and appealing red sister França Doliac. Doliac is an easy lay-free spirit, while Pleasance is an effeminate tranny who she likes to dress up in full drag just for laughs. Meantime, blacklisted Max from Hot to Hot and his nerdy pal are half ass bank robbers who hole up in their isolated seaside chateau until they can touch base with a ever seen boss. In the meantime, the balance of power shifts back and forth like an ersatz key largo, as guests who include 76 symbol Jackie Bissett arrive, and the crooks pretend to be servants, and leave, leaving the hold-up crooks to resume their home invasion and odd relations begin to bubble under the surface. The scene where Stander gets Pleasance to shave him stands out as particularly pregnant with subtext. The film is dark, literally, somewhere between Bergman and earlier Antonioni, particularly bringing to mind the bleak, windy island landscapes of laventura but with far more engagement with the characters however quirky than Antonioni would ever care to even muster. While it may not be my favorite Polanski film, after all, he also did Rosemary's Baby, Fearless Vampire Killers, Bitter Moon, and The Wonderful Ninth Gate. This is by far his classiest endeavor, and so much superior to the overhyped Repulsion. You'd never believe they hailed from the same filmmaker. I guess folks just couldn't handle all the perversion and discomfort being forefronted here. In But yeah, I do love this film. So go ahead.
0: This is a strange movie.
1: I couldn't believe it got released. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying Um again. Well, yeah,
0: because it's hard to describe this movie. Incredible cinematography. Gil Taylor. It's a tough one. I'm sure a lot of people never saw called this out. And they should. And, <laughs> and they should. And I'm sure a lot of people... Never saw Kultusack. He Said he loved Repulsion. I loved Polanski, and they skipped us over. Lionel Stander's amazing. Jack McGoward, also in The Exorcist. I want to say, also in The Fearless Vampire Killers. Mm-hmm. He's one of the leads. Um, it's just they knock it out of the park. This is a strange psychosexual film.
1: Yeah, um, it's Repulsion on steroids.
0: Repulsion on steroids, maybe. It's a hard one to describe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Personally, I always thought Francois Dorliac
1: was just hot. Same here. Than, I oh, never hot. understood the new thing. She's so icy. Whereas, you know, Dorliac was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Hmm.
0: Okay. Hmm. Call me up. You know, called this a Great film. Sick film. It's It's not for everyone.
1: That's true. Uh, next up, Fantastic Voyage, uh, where Bondian and Flamboyance and the 60s spy craze meet Marvel comic style sci fi. Starting off with a sequence straight out of a Harry Palmer film, likely Funeral in Berlin, which grew me quite a bit after a rewatch. That and Ipcrestfile are quite excellent. If you listen to our Michael Caine show, mm. ramp up anything I said about them that was positive by a factor of about 10. I rewatched them recently and I'm like, wow, these films are good. Just those yeah, first sure. two. Yeah. Just those first two. Yeah. And- we're re
0: promoting our Michael Caine show because it was we had fun doing that and we did he's so much
1: fun to talk about and it, you know yeah. at the time i was like yeah, funeral in the wind doesn't work as well whatever's kind of cold nicely i watched it again i'm like wow i don't know if i like it better than IPCRS files but it is good yeah <laughs> so anyway true. a defecting scientist is shot in the process and develops a clot in the brain as his defection was one of those government wants you on our side jobs they've arranged this crazy plan to remove the clot. nope they're not using blood thinners they're not using a shunt they're not using some kind of cyber knife operation they're going to take four grown human beings and a submarine shrink them down to microbe size and inject them into the guy's bloodstream do the job of course there's all sorts of cheap 60s sci-fi effects like white blood cells that look like those bag balloons from the prisoner and racko welch's own protuberant balloons <laughs> which are a special effect in and of themselves did you know she made an appearance on a cheesy 90s sabrina tv show and still had enough jiggle in her butt to interest me <laughs> I was never a no, fan. I didn't know that. I was yeah, never a right. fan. I understand she was always kind of pissed off at guys for the trajectory of her career being a little more than cheesecake rolls. Gee, maybe you can hack more gravitas that better rolls might demand. But she sure looked good for one of her presumed age, I'll tell you that. So anyway, crusty Arthur, Kennedy, and our always snake-like man of the hour, the rest of the crew. And guess who the traitor spy is? It's fun, but really light entertainment, and despite a few nice spy bits at the start, why is it more of a throwback to those awful 50s Mission to the Moon and very early 60s Italian sci-fi jobs where they all wear colorful uniforms to distract you from the fact that nothing's happening over the course of an hour and a half? It did go full circle, though, as Marvel did swipe it pretty directly for a much faded Neil Adams issue of The Avengers about a year or two later.
0: You know, a odd comparison uh, would be the Antonio Margariti uh, Planet movies, Wild yes. Wild Planet, War of the Plants, and with the colorfulness and the co- the, the costumes, and Lisa Gastoni, who doesn't get enough recognition, who's also quite buxom, and, and you know, Lisa Gastoni was certainly zippered into a really tight outfit. Not as much as, as Raquel. Well, well,
1: that's kind of hard to speak. do.
0: <laughs> It was kind of hard to do, but uh, it's, it's, that's our takeaway. Um, <laughs> Rickles <Peasins>, Briss? <laughs> <Donald's, laughs> that's our <a> takeaway. <laughs> know, Donald, Donald Pleasants as the villain in this is very interesting because he, he initially came comes off as, you know, this, like, know-it-all, no, professorial type. Segues into being nervous as usual. A nervous covetcher. Right. Before he, he segues into a whiner. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's we, the, the trage- tra- trajectory of that performance is just really like, okay, what happened with that? But, yo, know, for the time period, it's astounding looking. You know, in retrospect, it might look a little bit cheesy, but that, some of the effects still do incredibly well. So, <sighs> Stephen Boyd as the lead, I have to say this. He was a guy in and out of favor with Hollywood. I'm not quite sure if he has or had a background akin to George Nader or some other dark horse mm-hmm. characters that we we've covered over the years. But um, this for him was a big comeback um, because the film did very well, very well, and it's and it it's in retrospect a classic of sorts. Um, and that do much for Stephen Boyd's career. It did a lot for Raquel Welch. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, this is the first of its kind of films to actually get nominated and actually win Academy Awards. Yes. I Just wanted to throw that out there. So that being said, it cost a lot to make this thing. I'm sure these sets must look fucking amazing back in 1965, you know, when they shot this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it still didn't make enough money. Now, now of course, it probably made money over the years. But uh, still, so, it's a fun movie. I like it. Donald Pleasant's odd role, but he's going to continue this thing. Yep. So in
1: 1967 does Night of the Generals. Two Blofelds together in the same picture? That's right. Both Charles Gray and Donald Pleasance are Nazis in this film. <laughs> that tangentially works itself around the failed plot to kill Hitler by his own staff. Well, that might have been an interesting story, particularly quit Pleasance is one of the plotters and Gray sympathetic but on the fence. This one's marred by this whole shtick about Peter O'Toole killing hookers and framing the other generals for one reason or another, using the field explosion as a pretext to kill off unlikely co-conspirator and French resistance pal Omar Sharif. I mean in the end there's a sort of Simon Wiesenthal thing where O'Toole, who'd been serving the last few decades time as a war criminal, thinks he's finally free only to be confronted with his murders and plotting. But I was like I mean some war films are pretty good, some are positively dire, and I mean nothing happens in this film. It's so slow and pointless. I'm sorry, but Sharif not the guy you want as a German soldier. And just like the later power play, I really don't like Peter O'Toole. I'm sorry. I think the only rule I ever liked him was Supergirl. So forget about this one. What's your take?
0: Oh, I really like Peter O'Toole. Really so we're
1: have a <laughs> tough one
0: deciding on the, the dude. Shocker, you don't know want doing. But anyway, I really like Peter O'Toole. I think it was a huge mistake to make a bizarre, forward-thinking film like this so early in his career. He had just done. Um, he had just done a couple of breakaway films. Um, you know, another stage actor like Burton, another stage actor who uh, transferred over to film. Uh, Beckett, you know, uh, just did tremendous work. And we're talking about the early to mid '60s people, where he's playing a German officer who's also a serial killer and trying to blame uh, of prostitutes and trying to blame the murders on other people during the French Resistance. Hello. <laughs> I mean, can we be more convoluted than this? <laughs> um, and yet, it's boring as shit. Yeah, it's be- because it's very stagey. It's very stagey. And, and um, I would rather have watched paint dry. <laughs> That's how bad it was. This is like this is <laughs> this is like three years after um, Lawrence of Arabia. So people are saying, "Well, what the hell was talking about?" In retrospect. So yeah, you know, Peter Altus is a fucking. Big now, you know. Oh, yeah. Three years after that, he's done a couple of pictures between Lawrence and this, and they make this kind of movie. <laughs> what? It was never been looked upon, looked upon fondly, even in retrospect. Um, Donald Pleasance manages to, to, to uh, make you know, uh, make an appearance in his role. Something that you remember, but after if you've stopped watching it, not so
1: much. Yeah. So next up is I the Devil, mm. atmospheric slow burn, occult British horror. We talked this one in our David hemming show, but it's David Niven and scary old Deborah Kerr as this couple who wound up facing some family duty back home in France, while creepy and incestuous brother and sister Satanists skulk around menacing the wife and kids, while sexy Sharon Tate may or may not be carrying on with an increasingly disturbed Niven. It all turns out to be a wicker man situation, and Pleasance is a small but important part as the seemingly friendly local priest who dressed like a bishop. But there's a surprise reveal as matters run near to their close. It's not perfect. It bears a lot more in common with those old Jane Eyre women-in-peril gothic romances than you might expect. But you can say the same of Hammer's The Witches, and I love that film. The Hemings-Tate thing reminded me a lot of Jane and Peter Fonda in Spirits of the Dead as well, which you we talked about Peter Fonda show. It's not a bad film at all, and certainly a grimly moody one. But it's flawed for sure.
0: Yeah, probably the only thing I would add is that for fans of David Niven, and there there are many out there, and there were many out there. Uh, it, I'm sure they were shocked to see this kind of film, mm-hmm. especially with him as the lead.
1: I wonder what they thought when they saw him in the statue. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very odd, peculiar film, and um, – but but not one not without its fans. I see them out there. I see people highly talking this film film up on on the internet, and uh, they're watching a different movie. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it was a strange movie. Um, I I it's been so long to my defense. I don't remember what we could have said about
1: it with our David
0: Hemmings show. But it's it's very it's very twisted. I don't think it did quite well, and I don't think it's as fondly remembered.
1: Yeah, I definitely like it, but it's not a great film. It's just kind of a atmospheric one. I guess it's like a much lesser take on something like Night of the Eagle. So, next up he does You Only Live Twice, one of the Bond films. We spoke to this film series twice in depth, in two-part Bond and two-part revisiting Bond shows. So you have four shows full of Bond out there to look up so for more details piss, takes and laughs head on over that way but suffice to say this is the Japanese didn't we do a Connery show? And we did a Connery show as well but I don't think we touched on Bond so much. three times three times three times right? so that would be five shows worth there you go if you're into Bond we covered it a lot uh, <laughs> <laughs> but suffice to say that this is the Japanese set one and for that and many other reasons probably remains both of our favorites in the series to this day mm. Pleasance mm. makes quite an impression here despite being on screen for all ten minutes Personally, I always prefer Charles Gray's calm, yet sinister and menacing take on the character, but this was, in fact, the first film where Ernst Stavro Blofeld was seen on screen beyond the voice and hands. He also gets the memorable Zero Thomas for failure moment, where obnoxious Edgar Wallace creamy starlet Karen Dore gets the foot lever that drops the drawbridge he's walking on into a moat full of piranha, but his prominent Baron Strucker facial scars screwed up by and monocle while striking are comparatively quite over the top to what Gray would do with the same role, not to mention the good-humored and blustery Telly Savala's version. So it's not without its flaws as well. Oh, a flawed film, but
0: still a great movie, oh, a yeah. great action film. Um, So to put it in context, you know, they had uh, Dr. No from uh Goldfinger, Thunderball. Goldfinger, Thunderball, and each Bond movie. Up in the ante- at the time. Yeah, was was progressively bigger mm-hmm. and larger and bigger and more spectacular. And probably a lot of hard work to work on because, you know, as opposed to now when they, they take, like, Six years between the picture. Mm-hmm. They never did that back then. It was like take a year off, right back. Some of these things came out every year, mm-hmm. which means you're constantly working, which is why, I, and you know, in high school, you can't blame Sean Connery. Like, enough enough. You know, like, I'm leaving. You
1: know? Yeah, I want to do something else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to do And he did between 64 and, and. Oh, yeah, we
1: talked about and, all you know, these crazy movies. He did We there. talked about yeah.
0: all these crazy movies. He did a lot of crazy shit. But you only lived twice. It's like, one of my favorites. It's yes. just so out there, and it's got hot Japanese girls. Yes, and thank you. <laughs> hot Japanese
1: girls, yes. Oh. <laughs> I could go Wakabayashi. <laughs> I
0: know. I know. I'll even...
1: Yeah. Because it's not so... the Kissy Suzuki. It's the one that dies off. That's one. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, oh, yeah. And And...
1: She was hot in Dogra, too. Dogra to Space
0: Monster. Yeah. Do we, we even think about saunas and massages pre that movie? <laughs> no, no, no. Probably not. I'm not going there. <laughs> not going there. But um, it's good. So compare this. All I got to say, in, in retrospect to what we talked about a gazillion times before in different shows, the same director also did The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, two other, mm-hmm. uh, to be kind, well-regarded bomb movies. Roger, but
1: you just can't compare. This is so much better. Yeah, no. I love Moonraker, but it's no comparison to this one. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not going to talk about it. But he did the Diary of Anne Frank of all things. That uh, was a TV movie, and then he does 1971 THX oh. 1138. So go ahead, what are you can say. I want I want to jump in there before he did
0: it. that. He did this uh, favorite of mine, Euro spy movie called Matchless. Okay. During that whole Euro spy craze, European spy Bond ripoff thing, uh, for Alberto Latuata, you know, kind of minor figure in the whole thing, produced by Dino Di Laurentiis, so I had some money behind it. Patrick O'Neill was the stars. Perry Liston, sounded like a boxer, right? Ira Van Furstenberg, who became princess because she married and fucked some guy who had money, I don't know. <laughs> yes, after a while, do you remember? She was billed as princess, Ira Van Furstenberg. Yes. So, so, what the fuck? Melania's going to be like fucking Queen Melania and <laughs> fuck Trump? I don't know. So, It'd be more man. like Madame
1: Quisling, but that's another story.
0: Madame <laughs> Quisling, that's good. So Henry okay. Silva's in this, too. Nicoletta Machiavelli. Yeah, what mm. a what tongue twister. That was.
1: I she like was her. in his she's,
0: yeah. she's pretty hot, I was about to say. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so Patrick O'Neill is just like smarmy... Kind of pain in the ass news reporter. Yep. That's in I don't know it was where was it? Eastern Eastern Russia behind the Berlin Wall, which existed at that time, investigating red Chinese whatever the fuck it was. And Henry Silver as Hank Norris, no relation to Chuck. <laughs> you know Henry Silver it's like the epitome of like Italian Latin guys is playing like Hank Norris. <laughs> this is an American a lot. So he plays like, I think he was a, a spy who was undercover or a, a, you know, what do you call a, a
1: bad guy spy?
0: Help me out. What, is he uh, uh, what
1: do you call them? Um, enemy agent.
0: Uh... Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So he was working with the bad guys. So
1: Agent provocateur. There you
0: go. There you go. So apparently they came up with an invisibility formula <sighs> <laughs> that this Italian scientist had the... Thing for it. They torture this fucking guy. And so he who's also being tortured, Patrick O'Neill, because they suspect him the reporter being a bad guy doing some shit. Well,
1: maybe they saw Chamber of Horrors. <laughs> or maybe they saw a Chamber of Horrors. I, like I love name. that movie. <laughs>
0: so, so they're torturing both these guys, and before the guy drops dead, he gives a secret and a magical ring. Believe it or not, to Patrick O'Neill, who's naked and is invisible. <laughs> So he escapes, Henry Silver gets pissed off They're torturing this fucking guy too Now, this is like There's some stuff going on here You know, a little S&M thing going on here <laughs> They're torturing all the male guys uh-huh. All the females just Get the look alluring in this picture <laughs> So they say to Henry Silver Go out there, find this guy When you can see him And get the invisibility formula back This goes on and on ad infinitum. It's an enjoyable little thing Patrick O'Neill doing Bondian exploits. Yeah, this seems odd to me. It seems a little odd, but it's... Patrick McGee a... doing his Bondian exploits. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's like a fluff for another film, but it's, it's it's got its fun moments. It's got its fun moments. I want to talk about Matchless. Sounds amusing. That's what this was, 1967.
1: So, uh, anyway, 1971, THX 1138, a bizarre first film from, guess who? George Lucas. If it weren't for Star Wars and, to a lesser extent, American Graffiti, which were, unbelievably, among the few films that he actually directed, he's more commonly a producer, you never would have heard of this guy. I mean, seriously, this film sucks. And, I mean, I get the dry apocalyptic feel. It's part of a more humanistic sci-fi warnings to contemporary society like Fahrenheit 451, especially 1984, but, jeez. A republican slash Communist society where sex is illegal, but they dope up the all-bald, identically uniformed, and namelessly identifiable only by the Social Security number populace, populists so they can be used as grunts to do an unnamed work that kills off at least half the populace on a regular basis. That's the setup, folks. Robert Duvall is the title character who messes with his drug regimen and regains his sex drive, which gets this weird Mia Farrow-looking Maggie McComey, who's no person scambata to say the least, knocked up and eventually killed for it. Lesness is a co-worker who figures out what's going on and tries to get Deval to bunk up with him instead. You can read that as you will. Uh, they both wind up in prison, and in the end, only Duvall manages to pull a wholly unimpressive precursor to the astronomically superior of Logan's run, and discover this was all an artificial underground society when he reaches the surface and sees Earth as it is. Roll credits. Um, I guess if this were in the hands of a real director and scriptwriter, if the visuals weren't so washed out white and bland like the closing sequence of 2001 gone drab and done with a Kmart ethos, maybe you could have worked a watchable film out of this? As it is, like Spielberg without Jaws, my conclusion when it comes to these 2 overhyped bozos is the same. Spielberg and Lucas suck. They effectively killed off cinema between the two of them. They inaugurated the age of impossibly high-budget, corporate conglomerate identikit cinema that so many of us complain on a regular basis. Fuck you, George. This one sucks. So, what's your take?
0: (laughs) Well, I disagree with you on Spielberg and Lucas, but... (sighs) (laughs) It's my preference. (laughs) Um, So, um... The the thing with this movie, it's always odd. It's always been strange. Even when I was young and I saw it, I was like, this is so weird. This is kind of where cult cinema began around this time period. Mm-hmm. Like, between this, Cul-de-sac, which we just spoke about, Repulsion, which, you know, we also just spoke about, you spoke about. Cult cinema.
1: Midnight movies. Midnight
0: movies, yeah. It began around this time period. Like, this is so bizarre, so weird. The whole, you know, okay, so... What's a year or two after this, Alejandro Jodorowsky? Mm-hmm. You know, who I'm sure watched this and said, "Wow, I'm not alone." <laughs> yeah, but it's
1: miles and miles of distance between like the Holy Mountain no, and THX 1138.
0: No, right, right, but you would not watch Star Wars and then watch this, if we didn't tell you, say this is the same direction. No, not at all. So, yo, there's definitely that to be said. I mean, the guy was certainly a visionary. He. He definitely had something going on. I, I'm not quite sure. Hey, look, I, I, give, I give credit to uh, was it Warner Brothers who put up money for this thing because they this is a strange movie. It's totally unmarketable, and yet they managed to get it marketed. What was the one? Oh, ZPG it's, it's, that was even better than this. That was better than this, and that was sort of along the same veins. Yeah. That was a British British film, uh, not Hammer. A lot of people thought it was. At least I believe it wasn't Harry. No, it wasn't Harry. It was uh it was uh, Oliver Reed
1: and uh Yeah we took the, well we didn't took that movie I don't think but we talked to Oliver Reed in our Oliver Reed
0: Z P G and I forgot the one was Geraldine, somebody over there, chaplin or something. Yes, Geraldine Chaplin and, correct. Yeah. And uh another sh- but it's a strange
1: movie. It's a little bit more positive up to a point. Mm-hmm. So where are we going next? Wake in fright. This Michael York wannabe is a teacher in Australia. Apparently has some scam running where you have to pay them a 1000 bucks in 1971 money, which ensures that you work out your contract wherever they send you, even into the wilds of the Outback. Unfortunately, it's Christmas break, and he has to wait overnight for his flight home to his lady friend in a seedy, isolated mining town nearby, where the population is like 100% guys. The scummy sheriff must have some ulterior motives because he gets the guy massively drunk and brings him to this huge beer hall of a pub where they have this big section of slot machines, they hold weird paramilitary ceremonies, and do some homebrew version of gambling that resembles a cockfight and setup, but it's really just sort of a heads or tails coin toss. Don't ask. Being drunk and desperate to get out of his shit job contract, he gambles away all his money and then the quote fun starts. Our man Donald is a local doctor, cleverly named Doc, who stands on his head and diagnoses dog pregnancy as a party trick. He's also in an open relationship with one of the only women you see in town, who hits on the film's dubious teacher, quote, hero, only to have him throw up on her. Lots of weird shit happens, like a repulsive kangaroo hunt, a long sequence where Pleasance shows off his pointy moobs, talks about his open sex relationship with the aforementioned girl, and after getting the guy drunk and delirious, jumps his bones besides. He tries to hitchhike his way out of town, but runs up right back where he started, shoots himself, recovers, makes pals with Pleasance, and goes back to teaching as if nothing ever happened. Um... Okay? Well, Pleasance is clearly having a good time working out those odd kinks and gender bender tendencies we'd previously seen in Cul-de-Sac. Here, the feeling is far less decadent in the feet and more sweaty, ousey masculinity. I guess is the difference between Oscar Wilde and the crowd that hangs out in the empty trucks in the meatpacking district. One is far more feet and highbrow, with the other is all butch, testosterone, leather boy, rough trade business. And being a bunch of Aussies in the Outback, the latter suits them much better. Even so, it's a rough, scummy-feeling watch. More can a turkey shoot, I guess, than Ken Russell. I really didn't like this film. And suppose it was lost for years. Oh, no, we just got it back and restored it. Well, you should have left it lost. <laughs> What's your take? <laughs> Yeah, I saw this years
0: ago. Uh, I can't remember where the hell I saw it. And I really didn't like it that much. Uh, it's just, why, you say? Because it, it's just, I it guess to a point where pictures like this, and the Australians are making a hell of a lot of them around this time period. They just down, downers and downbeat. And, and the dark side, you know, we see enough of the dark side of of, of human psych, mm-hmm. psyche. Psyche. In real life, and, and you know, some people get off of that. Some people find a masturbatory exercise to watch shit like this over and over. The same people who will buy the three hundred dollar box set of Friday the Thirteenth because all the movies are in there. Well, fuck you, you idiot. <laughs> so it's like you get you get to the point where I don't know I just didn't like this, yeah. And I did rewatch it for this show because I'm like I of apologize. <laughs> And, and I was like, oh, this is rough Yeah. And it's it's almost I was just talking about I was just discussing and saying Commenting the weird movies That were coming out around this time period And this is certainly, again, akin to that whole Feeling, strange movie You know, it's like, mm-hmm. what the fuck
1: so uh except he's on the T V series, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes in The Horse of the Invisible as Carnacki. Our Man Donald and some nice sets are really the only saving graces about this middling entry in the two seasons of this BBC series, which is inspired by a book collection of the same name. Each story is a dramatization of a short story that ran contemporaneously to when Conan Doyle was writing Holmes in the Strand, or thereabouts. Some of them are of Edwardian vintage. None of them is actually a proper rival or seems particularly Holmesian. The closest you find is Saxormer's Fu Manchu series with Nielsen Smith and Dr. Petrie bounding around to the fog bound docks of Limehouse, but a few are certainly interesting. One of the more famed authors and characters here was William Hope Hodgson, whose pseudo scientific Carnacki was something of a pen and teller of his day, exposing hauntings and supernatural incidents as easily explainable fakes usually. The problem is with a story like the Horse of the Visible, which involves a family curse on the firstborn woman who marry out. In this case, Michelle Dutrice of in the darkness and blown on Satan's claw. While he does expose a Scooby-Doo like malfeasance at the center of all this, there's also a weird denouement, which suggests there may have been a family ghost at play all along. Make up your mind, will you? Pleasance does that wide-eyed, sort of jittery thing he comes to specialize in, but doesn't feel as front and center to the story or its conclusions as other detectives in the series, so it really doesn't work. Have you ever seen this one? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a long time ago.
0: I don't remember anything about it, sorry.
1: He winds up in the infamous Raw Meat in 1972. England in the 60s and 70s was notable for a number of truly unpleasant, grotty entries in the horror genre. This is one of them. It still may not be the worst of even the ones we'll be discussing tonight, but suffice to say there's a rather icky feel about it, offset by the dark, depressive atmosphere of UK cinema of the era and the fascinating subway and abandoned passage setting. Are the subways our modern old gothic house mansion? Perhaps. They certainly provide us with oddities like Doctor Who's Web of Fear and the video game Persona 5, where its tunnels stand in for subconscious and magical pathways. But here, presence is a decidedly class-conscious and common pub crawling police inspector who bristles greatly at dealing with ish nibs in the upper crest and those in political power. He's also roundly conservative and likes to rub it into hippie types. It's a role he injects with someone's trademark quirkiness, but so unlike his usual that I was shocked it was him in this particular role. I'd always remembered his role in this one with a deep distaste and unpleasantness and I was shocked that, oh wow, that's who Pleasness is here? He's hardly a hero. He's more of a middle management prick with teeth bearded at all sides, tagging a disgusting monster in a lot of group. Think humongous with better lighting, crossed with George Eastman and Anthropophagus the Grim Reaper, and you got one of truly depressing, grotty watch on your hands. Again, it works if you're in the mood, to the Sort of uber dark seventies British filmmaking, but it's not a film I pull out often.
0: Yeah, I don't watch this often. I, I I saw this years and years ago, and then I saw the uncut version years and years ago. Yes, it's been a long time. Um, is it distasteful? Movie. It's actually been remade, I think, in the past ten years. There, there, there was something that happened. Um, a tunnel under construction had caved in, or something turn of this century the previous century and uh, people survived and they resorted to cannibalism so now they're coming out and they're capturing people partly to eat and partly to rebreed you know they're they're, they're a line of people uh, it's dark movie and it's 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 rough you know for this kind of movie for this time period we're talking 1972 people this kind of rough film even what's implied is rough would you agree well, definitely. and and it's like damn <laughs> y'all. I think part of part of part of the acclaim that surrounded this film was by people who never saw it. Yeah. It's 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 a rough movie. Now that being said that being said, the uh the American filmmaker who directed this the guy was an American, it's a British film pretty much. Gary Sherman, he did this. He he did Dead and Buried, which is a really interesting film with um James Ferrantino, mm-hmm. he directed *Vice Squad*, which everybody loves. Mm-hmm. *The Wings* uh, *Wings* *House* are classic. He did *Wanted Dead or Alive* with uh, Rucker Hauer. I mean, the guy, still around apparently. The the guy doesn't work often. This is his first film. I don't know how the fuck he got this job. I'm not about to go into it. But very strange, very dark movie. That has a following. Yes, definitely has a following. Yes.
1: So he was in Colombo, an episode called Any Port in a Storm in 1973. It's actually one of the earliest and best Colombo TV movies. This one features Pleasance as a likable wine connoisseur and esthete who only bottles the mm-hmm. finest for the delectation of himself and his friends. And that's the problem, because while he devotes his life to the finer things, and the fruit of the vine in particular, he's no businessman, which becomes an issue when his sleazy younger brother drops in after another of his long disappearances and flings in need of cash, which means he's selling off the winery and estate, cutting Pleasant and penniless, and without recourse to his beloved wines and the lifestyle he's been accustomed to. And it's really for nothing but selfish reasons, not like he couldn't have left the guy at the winery and lived off the late father's money, or taken half the proceeds while bringing in a manager to bolster the business in, right? Nope, he's just a prick who said, yeah, you had your chance, tough shit clearly broken by this, Pleasance quite justifiably, I have to say, reacts in the only way left to him and stages the usual false trail of clues. Of course, our grubby genius of a detective susses out all is not well in the state of Denmark, and the remaining hour or more devolves into the usual painful tightening of the net until our sympathetic anti-hero once again loses everything. Gee, thanks, Columbo, for finishing the shithead brother's job. I really like Pleasance in this one. The scenery, the set is gorgeous. It was just tough to sit through him getting caught, which he really didn't deserve, and his brother kind of did. So, (laughs) what's your take?
0: Oh, I haven't seen that one in a long time. I didn't get to review it for the show. I do have a question. Yeah. So we're only up to seventy two,
1: seventy three. Yeah.
0: And we have forty more years. <laughs> so, so um, I mean,
1: you want to do it two parts? Let's do a two-parter.
0: Why don't we right right after seventy four, we'll stop, and then we. Yeah. I'm just looking right now. We're we're going to end up spending. I know. Yeah. Uh, and it's, this is a good show because there's so much juicy stuff to talk about. I know. we have. I mean, I'm just looking
1: at... Here. This is going to run to like 5 o'clock.
0: <laughs> right, right. We have... We have we're have. we just throwing it out there. We have Barry and Mackenzie, which I do want to talk about. We have um, Land of the Minotaur, yep. which can get a bit, you know, passing the Passover. The period. Halloween Eagle films,
1: Fatal Frames, Telephone. Paganini... Telefon? Yep, yeah, Paganini Horror, Telephone. Uh, Sarge so, and Pepper's only Hearts. of baby. Death, Vampire in Venice, yeah. Prince of Darkness... The
0: Dracula. Nothing
1: underneath Dracula, Phenomena, Devonsville Terror, Alone in the Dark, The Monster Club even,
0: Escape from New York. And you forgot Frankenstein's Great Aunt Tilly.
1: <laughs> Gold of the Amazon Women, Women, uh, Power Play. Jango 2. There you go. Night Creature. Uh, wow. The eagle has landed. Uh. Oh, God. I mean, you know, this is crazy. Escape from Witch Mountain. This is <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, we
0: started out saying the guy's carrots are crazy. All right, so let's go to the end of 74 and pick it
1: up next week. All right, so um, in 73 and 74, he does two amicus films. I'm not going to say much about them, if anything at all, because we've already done an amicus show. uh, So you can go back and listen to that. He did Tales That Witness Madness in the segment Clinic Link and another one actually it was just clinic I believe then 1974's From Beyond the Grave he was in a segment called Act of Kindness he'd done a couple of Amicus films there's, there's going to be more to come later and like I said I didn't bother to revisit them I was never the hugest fan of Amicus's uh, Portmanteau films I kind of preferred them when they did the standalones like The Skull or even mm. Fenn Griffin uh, but, you know, I did see them a million times growing up. You know, it was one of those things where they alternated hammer with Amarchus and a couple of Tygons. It was almost every Saturday or every time there was a Halloween event or whatever. So I did have some affection for them. I do occasionally revisit them, but didn't really want to go back into them again. Well, these
0: are coming toward the end of the cycle. The odd thing is about these two pictures... Um... Is that, you know, Amicus started out doing really good and getting really good distribution worldwide. And at some point after 72, they had a tough time. And I remember Tales of Witness Madness was coming out through, uh, yeah, for example, World Film Services was, uh, even though it had a Paramount logo, this got through one of, this got distributed through one of Paramount's lesser, you know, mini distributors back in those days, folks, uh, like a major company, United Artists, uh, twenty. Century Fox. They had these sub-distributing companies, and you never heard of them. So they would distribute stuff directly to grindhouses, not get it, you know, a big release. Um, we talked about this film a couple times, maybe a number of times. Not one of my favorites, this one. It's got an interesting cast overall. Jack Hawkins, is in, his voice was gone, by the way, due to cancer, so he was dubbed. Charles Gray and Pleasants are in the same episode, so if there's anything there for Bond fans. Susie Kendall, I really liked her. She was in this. Good-looking Bond wannabe Peter McEnry is in this. Uh, that never went anywhere. Joan Collins, Michael Jason, Kim Novak is in this. I think of all the Amicus films, Tales of Witness Menace was the lesser one, and we decided on that when we spoke about I mean, it. The, the the better one is from Beyond the Grave. Yeah. It's, it's it's the one with Angela. As you said, creepy-looking Angela. <laughs> but it's, they play mother and father and daughter, and it's very strange. And she She's certainly, when she was younger, had a certain look. Yeah, I don't know what it is, like reptilian. The, the, the cast overall in this is pretty more respectable remember I mean, peter christian the pleasances mm-hmm. if i could do that ian bannon diana doris neary Dorn porter david warner in ogilvy ian carmichael a favorite of ours mm-hmm. uh, lizzie and down jack watson margaret layton and so on and so forth and not and not and not this seemed to be a more classical horror film rather than the usual portmanteaus that they've been doing i mean it's sort of like hey, look if we're going to say anything, I agree or disagree, the best of them were Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, The House of Drip Blood, Asylum, Tales from the Crypt, mm-hmm. Vault of Horror, then these two, with Torture Garden being up for grabs. Yeah, I agree. Huh?
1: Although I did like the last one that was all our Chetwin Hayes films. Not the Monster Club, but the, the one that did before that, which I think you hated. The one where they've got the one with the door, where they have the Sodian uh, ghost behind the door that's kept himself alive through time. Whoa. I love Which that one, one was that? What was uh, the last one in that series? Pleasant's just name. I don't remember. Uh, I can't. Yeah. But I will say, you brought up Naima Doan Porter from The Protectors. That's another thing. Mm-hmm. Not only have we been rewatching those like we always do, but I realized I didn't even know before. I knew that what percentage was, but I always thought, okay, these are ITV. This is from BBC. Whatever. It seems like three quarters of the shows that we love from classic British TV, cult television, were all itv so mm-hmm. posthumously thank you sir lou grade you've provided us with uh, years and years of entertainment that we kind of get to breakfast every day and uh, on a daily basis literally uh, watching your stuff so thank you again it's, it's crazy i was like Wait a minute, he did the Saint and the Persuaders and this and that and the Champions and yeah, the, yeah. Like the Sweeney and like, oh my god. It was almost everything out there, the, the Professionals, the Champions, the Department S, Jason King, it just goes on and on and on. Even Zodiac, I'm like, holy shit. Ah, so, tremendous amount of cool stuff. Yep, Yeah. So, Thank you, Sir Lou Grade. Anyway, back on topic here. In 1974, he does The Black Windmill. We talked about this one Mm. in our Michael Caine show. It's a Michael Caine spy vehicle that came several years after his Harry Palmer films, or at least since the two that Ken Russell didn't fuck with, and trying to tread similar territory to much lesser effect. We cover this one in our Michael Caine show, but just to sum up, Caine's a British spy with a wife and kid who's infiltrating some IRA arms smugglers. Unfortunately... They sussed out the rat and kidnapped his kid to ensure his cooperation. He tells his boss, Pleasance, and initially he seems to be helping out, but things start going wrong when it becomes apparent that they've got an inside man tipping them off, and it's looking like that might be Kane. When they eventually leave him in the lurch, he turns the tables and goes on the lam from his own people while trying to find out who the top men are in the smuggling operation and rescue his kid, and like the Ipher's file, it turns out to be someone rather high up on his own side of the fence. I don't know if it's just the drab cinematography, the uninteresting kitchen sink business with the drab wife and the trousers sporting public school kid, or what the hell happened here, but you'd think that what, for all intents and purposes, looks like a Harry Palmer film would bear some of those films' grim appeal. And it's not a complete failure, but something vital is very much missing here. The gorgeous Catherine Shell from Space 1999, Doctor Who, City of Death and The Return of the Pink Panthers on hand as is Krusty John Vernon of Animal House fame and Delphine and Sagrig of Daughters of Darkness and Last Year at Marion But this not only isn't up to Harry Palmer standards, it can't even live up to Charles Bronson's St. Ives, which would appear a year or two after. And we talked about that during our you know, Bronson show.
0: Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, this was directed by Don Siegel. And it's, yeah. the, the, the money came from Universal. So they're obviously, you know, they got the, at this point, acclaimed director two of Clint Eastwood's biggest pits, Dirty Harry and Magnum Forrest, to direct a picture starring the guy who was in the well-regarded Harry Palmer films, Michael Caine, who's now box office gold, you know, although mm-hmm. himself known to be a uh, chooser of oddball roles, right? right, And, and mm-hmm. so sounds like it's going to be gold. It's going to be a gritty spy movie, but it's not. It turns out to be something that doesn't quite work. Um, we never could figure it out during the Michael Caine show. We sure, sure
1: as hell couldn't figure it out. You know what it reminds me of? You ever see any Dutch films like um, Lifespan yes. or Amsterdam? Yes, yes. It reminds me of a Dutch film. It's got that kind of coldness to it where you think it's going to go somewhere. You think something's going to happen, and no, it doesn't. And the, there's no emotion involved. It's just well, the problem with this icy. film
0: and the problem with, like, uh, those, I think both of those might even be Peter Moss films to a – Peter Moss. Uh, mm. They have good scores by Tangerine Dream uh, alumni. Why? Oh, I like those yeah. films,
1: but, you know, strange but films. But, yeah,
0: they're cold films. And you know what that they share with this movie? This drab, fuck it, bullshit ending.
1: Yeah, and even the the ones from, uh, was it Scorpio yeah. films? The, the softcore ones, like Blue Movie yeah. and Obsession and all that. Same thing, same feel. There's something about Dutch cinema that's just, I don't know, yeah. strange and robotic and icy. So that's what this reminded me of. So a couple films later he does the mutations, which is better known perhaps as the Freak Maker. You may think you're normal, but your ancestors, my ancestors, were freaks. So starts this bit of British grottiness, more commonly known as the Freak Maker, as spoken by somewhat off the beam college prof pleasants to a room full of insufficiently skeptical students. We are here discussing cloning, not clowning. If you say so, buddy, as he goes on to stump for regenerating dinosaurs, sure, what could go wrong there? He's a real piece of work who grows weird plants that bleed and keeps a circus troop geek show nearby to kidnap young women to experiment on. There's a moody but ridiculous scene where one's being stalked by a midget barely tall enough to reach your knee, who's waddling around in the woods while she runs. Luckily for them, Dr. Who Tom Baker is there as the effective man, complete with his full floppy hat and trench coat ensemble. There's nothing to stop kids from wondering why the doctor is killing folks and suffering from acromegaly except for the absence of that famous fan-provided scarf. Pleasance shows his class a homemade ray gun that turns out an orange moldy and back again in one of many instances of time-life photography in the film, which comes off more like an ersatz horror hospital than the update of Todd Brown in a market that says. There's some nice sets and it certainly reeks of that grim UK atmosphere that informs everything from Pete Walker and Norman Warren to Michael Reeves and Late Period Hammer. But putting Eurospy headliner and former pop star Brad Harris as the lead is just odd, and there's a sleazy feel to it that brings the sinful dwarf to mind. Julie Eig, proves she's no actress with admirable gusto here, and the whole thing goes with both Frankenstein and freaks in a crazy early morning mist and fogbound Denhamont that leaves Baker hunted and torn apart by dogs as the freaks get mocking watch, and Pleasance gets eaten by the plant monster with an open shut rib cage like those water monsters from House of the Dead. It's a weird film. I do like it, but it's yeah, it's Santa Clarita.
0: Yeah, it's a very strange movie. It's uh, yeah, you you mentioned Horror Hospital and a couple other things akin to it. Uh, yeah, this is a film which has its own, it wallows in its own thing. It's 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 weird. It's it's
1: uh, wallows in its own filth. Is probably right. Yeah, right?
0: I, you know, <laughs> and, and and I think two studios didn't know what to do with this Columbia and Warner at the time, and the uh, before handling it over to probably a suspect lower-tier distributor who went the, uh, the uh, grindhouse route. Uh, I do remember at the time, there was quite a bit of nudity in this. You know, Of course, we had nudity in the Hammer films like uh, The Vampire Lovers and Twins of Evil, all the British films, you know, need we say more? Say no more, but um, this film, when it's, it's sorted, it's lurid. It's it's weird-ass fucking storyline with, with, with a freak killer working for a mad scientist. You know, let's go down to basics, who has working with a freak show, which, you know, you know, we're getting really, like, oh. And Julie Edge, I remember, I was a teenager, and I saw this in the theater, and I said, my goodness, that woman has pointy nipples. So... <laughs> but you can't fucking act. But you know what? So much so that so much so much that I think Playboy at the time made her a cover girl for a month. And they, they they curiously had lots of pictures from mutations. Nobody knew what the hell kind of movie it was. It's just like, oh, it's a new horror film with Juliet. Just look at those pointy nipples. And, yeah, there was lots of new photos of her published at the time. You know, They were still trying to make her a thing, but after Creatures the World Forgot, which was 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. She's a beautiful woman. I, yes. I, I, I no don't want to see Miss at all. She just has lovely breasts for a small, thin woman. <laughs> um, but is she, was she Norwegian or some Swedish? I think
1: she's Swedish.
0: Right? Yeah, normally it's not my thing, but I was like, "Damn!" But, uh, <laughs> but um, this is why <laughs> I'm um, the Maven of things whatever the hell I'm called. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, my takeaway is
1: the breasts of Juliette. So <laughs> it's a weird. So we had the press of Raquel Welch for The Fantastic Voyage and the press of Julie Edge for his, um, The Freak Maker.
0: Uh, Barry McKenzie holds his own. Are you going to discuss that? Uh, no, go ahead. That'll probably ahead. be our cutoff film, I think, for today. Yes. So, <laughs> Dame Edna. Oh, <laughs> Dame Edna, really? Dame Edna. <laughs> Barry Humphreys is an Aussie comedian. He's also very popular in Britain, was very popular in Britain, might still be, God knows very popular, but strange. We're not talking Monty, Monty Python type of comedy. We're talking about Monty Python esque comedy. We're talking about actors drinking huge amounts of lager and then saying the lines and they may actually be drunk, that kind of thing. Um it's a very <laughs> do you remember the old Paul Hogan yes, show I before do. he became Crocodile yes, Dundee? I, That's kinda of what I'm fictional. I like now. Paul Hogan. There was another I did too. I thought the show was great. The show was great, and there was another guy, Dave something. Do you remember Dave? Dave, Dave, another I think it was Australian. Dave, um, gosh, but Dave and Paul Hogan were the best because they, these guys were imported over here around that Thames on Television thing, and some of these came from Australia anyway. So Barry Humphrey's big thing was as a cross-dressing comedian. Yeah, you know, he played this uh, older woman sometimes. He portrayed this older woman, matronly glasses thing. So it was very popular with the with the Booze drinking crowd and and um, I don't know I never did get it I saw a couple of things with this character anyway in this picture he plays like three or four roles because um, he was a big star at this time Barry Humphries uh, okay looking dude you know it's nothing to write home about and he wore this big floppy <coughs> fucking hat I don't know it's an Aussie thing right sorry fellow don't <laughs> don't don't kill us they're against Aussies um,
1: <laughs> hey I love Aussies they're friendly so then Barry. I it pressed the hell up. We met a couple in the park, but the beginning of the year before COVID hit, I was like, Are you? That, that's an accent. And I nailed where mm. it was. And she's like, How did you know? And she says, Okay, what town am I from? Whatever, you know, with the specific region of whatever. And I named off something that was right next to her. I think like I said it was like Christchurch or something. She's like, How did you know that? I'm like, I'm good with accents. Mm. <laughs> so, Patty so so,
0: Humphreys you know, plays like a senator, he plays Dana. He plays somebody else. He plays a buck-toothed Englishman. No, sure, sure. Barry Crocker, another comedian and even less talented, <laughs> plays our our hero sort of. Well, Barry McKenzie, so on and so forth. You might recognize names like Roy Kinnear in this and uh, Frank Windsor, Johnny Missouri Okay, so here's the freaking thing. This 1974 film was directed by Bruce Burris Ford. Who's that? Well. After doing a couple of Barry McKenzie movies of varying quality and success, he did this social-sexual-political film called Don's Party. Very well received in 76. 1980, he did Break a Morant, which made a huge star out of a lot of people, including Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. This is you know, a big thing. Eventually, he did shit like Driving Miss Daisy before he actually... Hold on, I'm looking for the one I'm looking for. He actually was considered... He did Tender Mercies, which is a pretty good film, with Robert, uh, Robert Duvall. You know, I won't take that away. But he was considered for a um, a Bond film, which apparently fell through and went to another fellow Aussie. But so, you know, Burmese Ford's been around for a long time. So why are we even discussing this? Because Donald Pleasance plays Count Plasma. yes. He's, he's a Minister of Culture from the People's Republic of Transylvania, <laughs> who people think he looks like a vampire. He looks like Dracula. People think he's Dracula, but he really just wants to improve the tourism for beer in Transylvania. <laughs> it's a terrible film if you're not into this kind of thing. Um, it was a big hit in Australia, I'm sure. Um, um,
1: oh, he made his fosters in there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a big thing. I, I so wanted to see this, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So how did Lewis see this movie? No, I didn't get it through a video trade. There was <coughs> near the late 80s, early 90s, video stores started going out of business. Yes, even that early. And this mom and pop near me was going out of business, and they had outside, you know, big VHS rentals. This was on a Thorny MI tape. you remember those? Thorny mm-hmm. MI? Sure, the big clamshell. And big clamshell box. I said, what is this movie? Donald Pleasant's Look Like a Vampire? How come I don't know about this movie? So I <laughs> took it. And then I said, oh, look, there's another Barry McKenzie film. I took that one too, with a total of like $6 and change for two big movies. Wow, was I sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's well remembered for being
1: strange. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed the first half of our little drawing room chat on Mr. Donald Pleasance. Believe it or not, we're almost halfway through because we started off in, like, basically 1950 and dragged it up to 74. So now, basically, he's around until 96, so it's not quite there, but it's it's about halfway through his career. So you see how long this is going? So we're going to be merciful to ourselves and you guys and split this into two episodes. So you will stay tuned next time. Please do. And we will hear the rest of his long-running and increasingly bizarre career as we get into things like the Halloween films and Fatal Frames. Ooh, you are in for some great ones there. So if you'd like and, to and, of,
0: and of course we're also going to discuss things like Escape from New York. Oh yes, and Puma Man because
1: I know <laughs> you. Puma fans Man, yes. <laughs> So if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us in there, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash scenes one or our website, scenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at Weird Scenes one and we are on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also iTunes, uh, itunes.apple.com. You can look for us under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you need a specific ID number, it's five five three four zero two zero four four, And we're also on other places like Spotify, and uh, I didn't even update the sheet here Weird Scenes of the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network now on Podbean see you next time and we
0: will send you autograph 8 by tens if you to take the pictures of us and then we'll sign <laughs> them and provide the postage back and forth <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know what we look like
2: so there you go exactly it'll be like the
0: scene
1: of the moon or <laughs> we'll just send you
0: pictures of two anonymous people there you go
1: yeah, exactly it'll be like a black metal lab you see like two people in hoods or something Ooh. It was like that. It was like that. Write up I gave us. You know, those two figures approaching in the fog. You know. All
0: (laughs) right. Thank you all for listening, and we'll hear from us
2: again next time next week.
1: Night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, Grindhouse, Drive-In, Independent, and Underground Film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by board and committee. These are the province of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? I A you ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about what? Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G., and me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery we try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At iLevel, bringing more to you only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life.
2: I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So, what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women, and where would Uncle Al be without his Scarlet Women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has a seeking? Why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover?
1: Join us for a dialogue between two long lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality the dark side and the light from the organized to the out of the way
2: this show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling
1: join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards light.
2: moving towards life Lessons in life and spirituality from Unconventional Seeker.
1: Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network
2: on Block Talk Radio.
1: Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment.
0: Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Hall, myself. Discuss with beloved, the king, the career, and the wonderful world of cult
1: films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soul-sleeping mire of our modern age.
0: Tune in. Turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on weird scenes inside the gold mine.
1: Only here on the Big Papa Online Network
0: on Blog Talk Radio.